Welcome to Act Online, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. William Shakespeare is undoubtedly one of the greatest writers of Western civilization. As we watch or read his plays, we are still able to draw applicable lessons on politics, our fallen human nature, and how one should relate to God and neighbor. In this episode, I sit down with Nicholas McAfee, a fourth-year doctoral student studying political philosophy at the University of Dallas. We discuss his dissertation on the political wisdom of Shakespeare's late plays. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Act in Line on our website at actin.org slash actinline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Nicholas McAfee is a fourth-year doctoral student studying political philosophy at the University of Dallas. He is currently writing a dissertation on the political wisdom of William Shakespeare's late plays under the direction of Dr. Gerard Wegemer. By unpacking the power of narrative storytelling to shape communities for good or ill, Nicholas's work aims to foster thoughtful engagement of political literature and healthy participation in civic life. A native of Upland, California, he and his wife currently live in Irving, Texas. Nicholas, welcome to Acton Line. So good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I, I love this topic. So the political wisdom of Shakespeare's late plays. When I was in college, we had a capstone class on Shakespeare. And in that class, we really focused on character depth, character development. And we 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 touched on politics, but... There was no depth to that to that subject. Um, so my question to start off is, why study Shakespeare in 2021, but in, in light of politics of all things? Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Where's, where's the depth there? And I think politics, right, both of the healthy and toxic varieties, it deals with the concerns of the city, right? Public stuff, the res publica. And so the point of contact between everyone today and the life of our communities from the elementary student learning U.S. history to the senator prepping for another committee meeting, right? That's enmeshed in and transmitted through storytelling. Where did we come from? Where are we going? Did our forefathers risk their lives for worthy causes, right? Does our collective American experience begin in 1619 or 1776 or somewhere else? And I think Shakespeare, right? He wasn't only a good storyteller in his own right. It's taken a lot of effort to cancel him because his prose, even if it's increasingly archaic, is still so good. But he was masterful at imbibing and adapting uh, the stories of England and its cultural heritage, both pagan and Christian. Sometimes he's openly riffing off of Chaucer, who's in turn riffing off of Boccaccio, who's recreating even more ancient sources, et cetera. And so the riches of previous traditions meet with his own unique choices and embellishments, which introduce new characters, circumstances, make others more three-dimensional and vibrant than they were before. And since going to film school, I'm quite familiar with the critique that Hollywood these days rarely comes up with anything original. And while there's a lot of truth to that critique, I would strongly urge, and I, I hope it's a lot of what my work can do, the next generation of 
American storytellers not to shy away from finding, tuning their voice within the kind of chorus, we might say, of splendid poets that came before them. And I think Shakespeare might just still be the best in our language. We're still, still using English for better or worse. And that means, yeah, his timelessness uh, endures. So the public stuff, res publica, how can we understand politics in light of storytelling? Because in my mind, when I think of politics, I think of policymaking, I think of foreign affairs, I think of the activities done in the Senate and Congress. So sure. help, me, help me connect those dots between politics and storytelling. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question people ask all the time. Why exactly uh, turn to these plays? And it's true that not all performing arts, not all plays, movies, TV shows are equal to be sure. So I don't think you can do this with everything, but I do think the performing arts are a powerful vessel for reflection and insight. So I remember, for example, the first time I saw Inception when I was at a summer camp in uh, a summer debate camp in Chicago. And when everyone was coming out of the theater, it was all this, all this vigorous debate, surprise, surprise, at a debate camp, whether or not, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's character ends the movie awake or in a dream. And I don't think all this conversation was just some exercise in futility. I mean, good literature, good art in general, it invites and then it stands the test of good questions. And it conveniently happens that Shakespeare, right, often ends his plays with characters going out promising to further discuss and digest all the crazy stuff that's just happened to them. And I think that's because he understood that the best learning experiences, and I think these are ones we should try to, and I, I try to emulate in my own classroom. The classroom should imitate these kinds of after art conversations in their most constructive form. I think about it sometimes as, you know, there's our time with the art, our time watching something in a theater, in a movie theater at home. And then in that in-between time, when we're moving back to reality, right? we have those conversations. Hopefully a classroom can be a little bit like that. And, and I hope that good academic work can empower people of all ages, capacities to feel confident that, you know, with a little bit of time, a good glossary, you know, good conversation partners, you can get a lot out of Shakespeare viewings, a lot of reflective time material for all subjects of life, but yes, in, including politics. Now it's true that, you know, any academic study of a play or, or any form of literature that, you know, is a script to be performed. You have to be humble when you're an academic in this area, you have to be relatively humble with your conclusions, right? There's ambiguity in the text um, that in turn generates fertile ground for acting choices, right? I mean, Hamlet's fraught interactions with Ophelia, you could render that in several different plausible ways. I actually had the, <laughs> the real pleasure of acting out uh, Hamlet and Ophelia's uh, back and forth early on in Hamlet. I had the pleasure of acting that out with my wife when we were uh, both in film school, hmm. but it, it really drove home to me that, you know, that can be done many different ways, plausibly. And each of which gives the audience something new, a different, maybe even distinctive practical takeaways, ethical takeaways. What do you learn from this? And Shakespeare, right, he's not giving us a well-oiled theory of the best regime. I don't think some people think they can find that. Uh, I'm not sure he would be nearly as fun if he did give us this, this theory. Um, but just because poetry isn't or shouldn't be on the nose moral lectures, right? I get that a lot. 
right? Aren't you just trying to read poetry as some some moralism, some didacticism? It doesn't mean that it's a domain of moral relativism. I think quite the contrary. We know from within Shakespeare's own plays and the writings of his contemporaries that English playwrights, uh, playwrights, excuse me, commonly understood their art as the imitation of nature, including human nature, along with you know what fulfills us as human beings, what delights us, deceives us, overwhelms us, leaves us empty, right? So I think without a shared common human experience, right, kind of taking that almost as a philosophic uh, assumption of sorts, but I think it's a grounded one, which includes our understanding of what's good and evil. We couldn't laugh at the same jokes. We couldn't experience the same revulsion at tyranny rearing its ugly head or deception, betrayal of a friend, nor could we partake of you know, the same cathartic relief when a truth comes out or justice is you know, finally served. Plays are, are very fertile, I think, minds uh, to be explored. And um, when people, people doubt this all the time and just go back to the plays, go back to you know, Hamlet talking to the players um, at the holding up the mirror up to nature yeah. right? beginning to end. That's, that's, that's what Shakespeare's up to. And so I'm just, just trying to make a little sense out of it. Right. Absolutely. I like that you included human nature and, and our human experience because human nature just never changes. Hmm. You know, we could, we could read and study Shakespeare. I even, even the epic of Gilgamesh, all past ancient stories and all forms of of behavior is still relatable, and I think that's fascinating. And I like that you also brought brought up Ophelia because, you know, I instantly thought of again that character depth, right? And yeah. how you said that, um, you know, this this one character can be rendered in several different plausible ways. Uh, I immediately thought of Brothers Karmazov. I think mm. that story is fantastic. Yeah. You know, there's, there's notes of good and evil, notes of faith, notes of 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 all sorts of of, of human nature and, and behavior. So it's fantastic. So what are some of the lessons, political or otherwise, that Shakespeare can share to us 21st century Americans? Yeah. No, I, I really like the Brothers K mention. I mean, talk about the the line of good and evil running through each one of us. Yeah. And I, if I could just briefly also, you know, with Ophelia, right, that depth of character, that's one of the best arguments, I think, for, you know, is Hamlet crazy? That's a question a lot of people like mm-hmm. debating, discussing. Well, I think Ophelia's depth of character and the presentation of her madness, like, that actually looks, I think, a lot more like what madness looks like. Right? That's a good argument for Hamlet. You know, I think he goes off the rails in a number of different ways, but is he actually mentally disturbed to the point where he's not, you know, rationally in control of himself to some extent? Um, Hamlet doesn't talk like Ophelia. And these are two distinct characters and focusing on them, giving them specific questions. Hey, you know, is this, is this explainable as part of his plan, even if it's kind of a harebrained plan at times? I think the answer is, yeah. And so it doesn't sound like Ophelia. So yeah, right. depth of character is, is one of those things that I think helps us read Shakespeare in a way that, okay, maybe a lesser artist, a lesser playwright, we couldn't ask the same questions about perhaps. Right. Um, but as to, you know, what, what political lessons does Shakespeare have? I, I think 
if there's one thing that <laughs> Shakespeare's constantly hammering us with, it's it's this powerful reminder of the ancient stress, right? To know thyself. And I think that's in large part because he takes the fallenness of humanity deathly seriously. So one of the common themes that echoes across his plays, and I, I think this also shows up frequently in his source and uh, teacher of sorts, St. Thomas More, mm-hmm. this theme of uh, having being ignorant of yourself, of who you are, and others that comes with dire consequences. I mean, think of King Lear's blindness, both to Cordelia's fidelity as well as the treachery of his elder daughters. In Cymbeline, which is a totally underrated gem uh, and the subject of my dissertation's first chapter so far, um, the leading couple, Posthumus and the princess Imogen, right? they're a married couple. They're decent people. And Posthumus especially has this great reputation, but their relatively untested marriage proves much more brittle than either of them think or, or thought initially, right? It's, 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 not as resilient to the charge of infidelity and betrayal that's thrown at them. It's like, okay, where have we heard that before? Right? And Shakespeare loves uh, throwing charges of infidelity at us, much ado about nothing or Othello or Winter's Tale. But if we're lucky as the audience, we can learn vicariously how to avoid some of these mistakes, especially those mistakes that are begotten of naivete or ignorance. Um, and I think in a similar vein, Shakespeare also dramatizes very well the variety of ways we can deceive ourselves. So in Julius Caesar, for example, Coriolanus, for example, we encounter right two lead characters who insist repeatedly that they are above what others think of them. But they actually are, I would suggest, a bit overly preoccupied with letting everyone around them know as much, right? Know that they're above what others think of them. And, and also when you hear Henry V in that same play, continually harp about his own innocence, the fact that he has a clean conscience. You know, I think the audience slowly starts to wonder is, hmm, if you're constantly saying you have a clean conscience, you have a clean conscience, is it actually, is it actually clean? Um, So self-deception, another thing that's really important and easier to see in other people, even if those people are on stage than ourselves. I think Shakespeare also reflects this concern of the ancients relative to moderns a little bit for examining uh, human happiness as the kind of core and bedrock and foundation of our ethical duties. So I think we in the modern age can easily enough recall, right, the damage that tyrants do on their populace. I know no one ever flings that word around tyranny ever on Twitter. (laughs) Um, I'm not on Twitter officially anymore. But uh, ancient and classical thought, I think, is very much concerned also with the way that tyranny damages the tyrant, that it's bad for the tyrant's soul. So I think Shakespeare, for example, uh, dramatizes the way that conscience bites the righteous and the wicked in varying ways, sometimes very poignantly, poignantly, excuse me. So, for example, Macbeth, uh, his hardening over time, wonderful to watch if it's done well. And his rejection of repentance is incredibly tragic. Or in Hamlet, when we get a window into uh, Polonius, the usurper king, right? His despair over prayer, over the possibility of contrition. Um, and that same subject is treated humorously elsewhere. It's not, not just all, all doom and gloom in the case of um, somewhat humorously 
the murder of Clarence uh, in King John, or in the case of uh, Henry VIII in the play of the same name. Um, but yeah, I think the the case of conscience, that's one of those words that that haunts a lot of Shakespeare plays. And we get to see on stage a kind of somewhat classical account of um, even a hardened Richard III, the great tyrant that everyone thinks about as kind of quintessentially Shakespearean villain. We learn that he doesn't actually sleep well, and we see it in a way that, um, in a way that other uh, classical historians couldn't dramatize. Uh, you know, the appeals to kind of self-interest that um, that you can take as a lesson out of this and hopefully share with with other people. Because um, Shakespeare's writing in a way that I think he assumes his stagecraft is powerful. Or you look at The Tempest, and I think there are a lot of a lot of people have made very good arguments that the magic of this sorcerer Prospero, who's ruling over the island, who's the protagonist of the play, um, a lot of the language suggests that it's in some way an allegory for the art of illusion that is making plays, and it's a powerful one. It, it makes the villains mad for a little bit of time, but it's ordered towards their restoration to reason, towards their rehabilitation, their contrition for the wrongs that they did to Prospero. And so I think Shakespeare sees his art, the dramatic art, as something that can actually move people in a very powerful way, even people that might be somewhat hardened. So I think this dramatization of conscience, of the damage that tyranny does to the tyrants, I think that actually might be some of the most compelling arguments you could make to people who are actually susceptible to tyrannical impulses and people who are on their way to exercising power for their own benefit. It's going to be hard to to argue with people that are really set in, in that, in that place, unless you can hit them from a very specific surgical potent angle. I think plays do that. Um, And I think in Shakespeare, we see the futility generally speaking, of pursuing power or wealth or pleasure as the basis of happiness, right? I think that's instructive for all of us, but it's also very instructive for those who will be or who are uh, in positions of public authority. Do you think that Shakespeare's his late plays were a form of political activism. Do you think that he was writing these stories for those in power during his day? I think it's very hard to say. And I, you can listen to John Finnis, uh, the eminent philosopher of our time, uh, has, has made an excellent uh, argument in favor of Shakespeare's crypto-Catholic um, hidden activism. I don't want to misrepresent his argument, but uh, he looks at things like, and and he's very attentive to historical details in a way that I would never discourage people from. Um, I think the historical context, political and otherwise to Shakespeare's day is is essential to getting right these texts. But uh, scholars like Finnis will say that, yeah, actually, throughout much of his life, but especially um, in the beginning of the reign of of James I, uh, this assuming Shakespeare has some kind of crypto-Catholic or at least Catholic sympathies, um, the new Stuart age of persecution of Catholics and uh, other uh, 
religious minorities in England um, occasioned some of the underlying criticisms that I think are there of the regime and its religious establishment. I think you see this very strongly underneath Henry VIII, which is also the subject of some authorial questions. But I, I think it's fair to say that the Henry VIII that Shakespeare's friends, um, fellow players thought was was his and was a part of the canon of the first folio of his first first collected works. If they thought, you know, his Henry VIII was was Shakespeare's, and I think we have a Shakespearean work that is surprisingly cutting against the regime. But, but um, I think it's always good to be, again, very cautious with a play that, you know, its ending scene is the baptism of Elizabeth I. Archbishop Cramner gives this wonderful prophecy, and a lot does seem like it's very kind of pro-regime. Yeah, Elizabeth is great. She'll have this great successor, James. Uh, everyone's happy. Um, all the bad guys, Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey, he's gone. He's off. He's out of the out of the picture. There are a lot of things you could plausibly interpret this as a celebration of the Elizabethan age of the Tudor monarchs. Hmm. And um, and so if you were forming your your cell of of radical uh, Catholic recusants, maybe you wouldn't send them to see Henry the Eighth immediately um i'm i'd like to think that a lot of the lessons of shakespeare do not depend on him being seen as activist in the sense of there's a specific political goal that's coming out of these plays i think that's a weight that you better have really darn good evidence to support and in many cases a lot of historical connections that scholars identify or want to identify are very plausibly explained by other things. Um, so we could go into the weeds of that, but I think the power of Shakespeare is not dependent on specific yeah, policy projects, even a regime change coming about as a result of his plays. I don't think he was writing for that. In The Tempest, he says his project, Prospero, tells us his project was to please. So I do think pleasing people, having, having them have a good time is, is a part of what Shakespeare's doing but in the prologue to Henry VIII, he also tells us, look, there are lots of different people in the audience, people who want a clown show. Sorry, guys, like that's not what we're about. But there are people who are going to be looking for specific chosen truths, looking for things to believe in. And the play asks you to be sad, even though, like I just said, it ends on this apparently joyous baptismal note. Why is that? I think... Um, I think the power of plays, of the late plays especially, comes in their dramatizing the weightiness, the difficulty of ruling, uh, but also of navigating, navigating tyrants, navigating persecution, navigating the worst kinds of interpersonal betrayal, and coming out of that into a place of hope, coming out of that into a place of maybe even a pious disposition towards the divine towards somehow there's a providential ordering to all of this. And somehow even characters who lose their political offices, like Cardinal Wolsey, who has one of the most remarkable conversion sequences. Uh, Henry VIII, I, I could go on about, about it as a play, but, but Abraham Lincoln, 
loved it, took uh, treasured a lot of those verses to heart. Catherine of Aragon, also in that same play, Henry VIII, uh, loses the queenship, but is crowned by what seemed to be angels in this amazing dream sequence, one of the longest Shakespearean stage directions in his whole corpus. So somehow, even people who are on the outs with the regime, who lose their political offices, and in, in Catherine's case, apparently through no fault of her own, there's still something remarkably, laudably attractive and beautiful in their example, in seeing the darkness and going through it. And I think the late plays, multiple ways, um, point us towards, constantly point us towards the hope that should drive everyone, but especially people who are entering into the rack of politics. Because even a Cardinal Wolsey, even someone who falls from power as much as he does, he's not telling his, uh, his associate Cromwell, he's not telling him, go do the Benedict option. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't want don't <laughs> don't don't to cast aspersions on that. But, but he, he's not saying retreat from politics. He says, serve the king multiple times, but do it this way now going forward. And, and part, of, part of my work, I hope, is to unpack a little bit more what is the way that Wolsey's alluding to, the way through the rack, through his own wreck and, um, and failures. And Shakespeare's really interested in that question, I think. This is fantastic because there's a lot of existentialism throughout all of Shakespeare's plays. And I appreciate that you brought up Abraham Lincoln, who was a politician, who loved Shakespeare. And we can see through Abraham's leadership that it was thoughtful. And I think that we would see a change or a shift in thoughtfulness in our current politicians if we spent more time studying Shakespeare. I would love that. And there was a time when you – know, I, I, I agree. I agree. I think – it, what you're saying throws me back to the time when I imagined myself sort of at, at the cusp, the start of the PhD program. It would be so great if I could just connect with some city council people here in Irving or maybe in my hometown, Upland, California. If I could just sit down with some local politicians and be like, let's watch a play and chat about it afterwards. And that'll be like my my political consulting company right there. Hmm. Um I think there's a part of me that was a little naive in that hope. That is to say, I do think Shakespeare shows us habits get hardened, right? There, I mean, that's, that's maybe kind of a, a, a truism, but at a certain point, it becomes very difficult, especially when your ears are full of not only the expectations of your constituents, but especially of your staff, of your colleagues. I think for a lot of contemporary politicians, without wanting to cast a broad judgment on their souls. It's tough to set aside time to be philosophic about wonderful art. That's not to say that many of them don't have, uh, you know, troves of appreciation of, of art, artistic pieces that they appreciate. Um, but I, I remember uh, one of my teachers here, Dr. Dan Burns, he spent uh, a year in Washington, DC, including uh, for a time, he was working um, in the Department of Health and Human Services. 
And he gave this wonderful talk. I think it's available on UD somewhere about, um, about his experience as a, as an academic in Washington amidst the policymakers. And he mentioned there's a lot of philosophic curiosity. I think a lot of people would really love to see more Shakespeare plays in DC. A lot of people would like to read more Tocqueville in DC. There, so there is this desire. So how can we make that desire not require years of study and you know, pouring through every note on your gloss because man, half these words don't mean the things that they used to mean. This is like, like there are real obstacles to um, the thoughtfulness that could come out of a more sustained treatment of Shakespeare. So that's why I think it's especially one of the most fruitful things that I've seen come out of communities like UD is not only the, the teachers that we, we send out at the college level, but also at the high school level, reimagining what are the kind of curricular possibilities with high schoolers, with Shakespeare, with the language challenges. And increasingly, I do think teachers are finding that um, if you treat these seriously as um, vessels of practical wisdom, as things that, yeah, do ask you to be more thoughtful about the regime you live in, uh, they're so much more interesting to students. And students can can not only get those lessons, they can get the jokes if you take your time with it, a little more time. So yes, I would always, I, <laughs> of course, more time with Shakespeare would render, I, I think, more, more thoughtful people, just as more time with the Bible would, uh, you know, the great Western story. Um, I think more time with that would, would mean more thoughtful leaders and a more thoughtful populace. So um, hopefully for now, right, we can help be another another kind of maybe thorn in the side of of someone who who's on the fence about you know breaking open Shakespeare again. Um, I would definitely recommend um, having having a, a good little gloss, a good little gloss, and that could be whether it's the you know the a Penguin series or I mean even sometimes people think oh the art in Shakespeare you know that's the that's the scholarly one that's too much and I, I can understand that don't don't read the introductory essays, just, you know, look down at the words that you, you don't know after you've gone through a read through, um, and try to, try to, try to accept the fog is, is one thing, I guess I'm, I'm kind of transitioning into pedagogical musings, but I think with Shakespeare, like with a lot of great works, it's okay to not get everything that happens. It's okay to not appreciate all the wordplay the first time through, right? If mm-hmm. these are beautiful works of art, you know, you go to an art, art exhibit, you're not going to say, wow, that was, that was an amazing Monet. All right. I've seen it. I'm never going to look at it again. Yeah. Right. There's nothing more to appreciate. No. Um, similarly with, uh, with almost all forms of the written word that we treasure, give it that second reread, the fog will lift. You know, <laughs> I felt like that with Thomas Aquinas, like he had 40% of it, maybe the first time through suddenly the second read through it's 60%. And I don't exactly know why, because I don't feel any more capable, but somehow these texts, if we trust ourselves to them, will reap fruit, I think. Sure. In the long run. No, you bring up a good point. I think there's a there's a stark difference between analyzing Shakespeare and analyzing the Federalist Papers or the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. I mean, there's two completely different types of documents, but, you know, reading the play or listening to or watching it, 
I mean, I might have to watch the play over and over to yeah. just understand one character, that one line that character said. But that's different than reading the Constitution. Um, so you bring up a really good point on 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 how to understand Shakespeare. Uh, Nick, last question: Which is your favorite play, and why? I thought there were there weren't going to be any curveball questions on this show, Gabe. <laughs> Goodness gracious! On the spot. Um, hmm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit uh, and just say that of the plays that I'm studying right now, I think there's a really good argument that Richard II is my favorite play. But um, of the late plays that I'm studying right now. I really love Henry VIII. And I know that maybe came across a little bit in the frequency with, with which I was uh, mentioning it. But Henry VIII is a play that's weird, right? It, it opens up with the, the, the prologue asking you to be sad. And it ends with this epilogue that says, ah, this play probably didn't pass for any of y'all. But um, if the merciful construction of good women, such a one as we showed you, you know, if you have that, then maybe you'll forgive us. For this play but wait a second it just ends on this 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 very happy note apparently praising the regime what's going on i i genuinely think that henry the eighth is one of those plays where shakespeare not only is is working deeply with historical sources i mean the trial of catherine of aragon and a number of other sequences that happen there are very close to our uh, our historical records of those trials. So he's he's not making this whole cloth, but the parts he does add, like Catherine of Aragon's uh, intercession for uh, the English people when they've been overly taxed as a, as a result of Cromwell. Um, Catherine is one of the most exemplary, self-controlled, characters in the whole corpus and there aren't that many good people in Shakespeare <laughs> like there are not that many genuinely remarkably great characters that don't have enormous glaring flaws in the Shakespearean corpus and that's life like I, I think that's totally faithful representation of reality but it's also good to be able to say well what am I supposed to do Shakespeare right what 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 do good states men and women look like I think Catherine of Aragon would be at, at, at the top of my short list. And it's in part because like Hermione in The Winter's Tale, which was the other one I was kind of going back and forth with for a favorite, like Hermione, I really think Catherine is that example of patient suffering, right? The guy who's betrayed her almost as much as her own husband, who abandons her, Henry VIII. The guy who's done her the most damage is the apparent villain of the play, Cardinal Wolsey, which as I mentioned earlier, he gets cast off by the king. He has this kind of apparently sincere conversion. And his death is recounted to Catherine right before she uh, dies. She's on her deathbed. We don't, we don't see it on stage. And she has this incredible magnanimity in both accepting the news that her arch villain, her kind of nemesis, uh, had a change of heart, but she even says, goes so far as to say she hopes he can be a precedent for her leaving this life. And that she hopes that someone will say as nice things about her as, as her servant said about Wolsey, that kind of magnanimity, that power of 
kind of seeing the depths of the darkness of the world and still aiming at something higher, still aiming at, in the words of the play, um, you know, honors that no man can give. Right? She appeals at one point to, uh, there is a justice, there is a, a judge, excuse me, who no king can corrupt. And the story of that play is Henry VIII, I would argue, corrupting various aspects of society. The play is structured, it seems, around several trials. This is something uh, Dr. Wegemer first, I think, identifies. Henry's corrupting England in a number of ways, and it's taking a devastating toll. We have a nobleman executed right at the start of the play. But in spite of the level of the darkness, there are still characters, there are still individuals who are aiming at something higher than themselves, who are aiming at something higher than the goods of this world, even the political goods of this world. And that's something that a lot of Shakespeare readers, a lot of readers today just don't understand. What do we do with this play? What do we do with this play? It's just weird. It's strange. It sounds kind of funny. So someone in 1850 was like, you know what? Uh, Fletcher wrote most or all of this play because, you know, we know Shakespeare and, and Shakespeare writes that gritty, dark uh, King Lear and Hamlet stuff. And I, I'm, I'm reducing for the sake of, uh, for the sake of time, but taking seriously the window that Shakespeare gives into magnanimous characters, not necessarily in a classical sense who, you know, maybe would have committed suicide like Lucrece um, or Brutus, um, but a decisively, I would argue, Christian magnanimity that aims at the honors of heaven in spite of being stripped of all the honor of the world, that's, I think, a treasure that late Shakespeare really starts hinting at strongly over and over and over again. And characters like Catherine of Aragon, yeah, so good. So good. I'm going to start fanboying if you let me go on any, <laughs> any further. It's just, it's just so, yeah, it's, it's great. It's a lot of fun, and people haven't, haven't taken it seriously, I think, for a while. Not many. Nicholas McAfee is a fourth-year doctoral student studying political philosophy at the University of Dallas and currently writing a dissertation on the political wisdom of William Shakespeare's late plays. Nicholas, thank you for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you so much, Gabe. It was a pleasure. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Gabriel Zhajan.